Ah, the drudgery of work. Clock in, clock out, call these people, email those people, schedule these meetings, fill out this paper. Shouldn't there be more to life than this? We exist to do more than just print out reports and maintain customers, right? Maybe there is something more to what seems like our biggest pain in the rear. Maybe this is what we were designed to do. Maybe this is what we are called to do. Bad news. Pretty sure your mom lied to you. Um, but maybe it wasn't your mom. Maybe it was your dad. I don't know. Maybe a grandparent. Uh, maybe it's a well-meaning coach or teacher, or maybe someone in your HR department at work. I, I don't know who it was. Maybe you just kind of saw it on Pinterest, and you're like, that is so me. I need that. Or you, know, you saw it, your favorite character in that Netflix show you Ben said it, and you're like, yes, that's got to be true. It's not. See, they all lied to you when they said that you, yes, you, can be anything that you want to be. So, you know, I know we just, we just want to dream big. We just want to pursue our passions. We just want to, you know, just give it everything we've got, and it's going to happen, right? Tell that to the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, tell that to every political candidate that just crashed and burned in the month of November. You know, tell that to the high school kid that gets a rejection letter from the college they've always dreamed about going to. Tell that to your friend at work when they once again get passed over for that promotion that they really do deserve. You can be anything you want to be. Somebody's not telling the truth. You know, I, I can appreciate it. And, you know, I know those sentiments are well-meaning, but I'm just not sure, not only are they not true, but I, I think they're sometimes borderline ridiculous. Because let's be honest, the reality is I cannot now, nor will I ever be, able to dunk like LeBron. I can assure you that I cannot now, nor will I ever be able to win a Nobel Prize in physics. I cannot now, nor will I ever be able to design technology that's going to replace your iPhone. And I am incredibly confident that neither can you. And I don't say that to be hurtful or dismissive, but the reality is so many of us can pursue this idea that we can be anything that we want to be, that it can take us through this, this continuous cycle of discontent and dissatisfaction leading to unhappiness and frustration and even anger or depression. Because the reality is, we can't be anything that we want to be. And how many of us find this true about one of the most important parts of our life, our job, our work, our career, what we so often refer to as the daily grind? How many of you have been in those moments? Go ahead and raise your hands. We're all friends here. This is church, so there's no lying. You have been in a situation where you're asking yourself this question, really, how did I get here? Like, what decision did I make that led to this moment? Like, how can this be what I'm supposed to do? You know, I, I don't think that's a foreign concept to any of us. And, and in fact, many of us, you know, we all know someone, or maybe we are that someone. We only work during the week simply so we don't have to work on the weekend. You know, Monday morning is just this moment of dread, and we just can't, can't wait to get past that and begin looking again towards Friday. And we wish we could just hide from our boss or somehow disappear and not have to engage with those people who constantly annoy and frustrate us for 40, 50, 60 hours a week. 
And then we end up spending 30 or 40 years of our life working so hard so that at some point, when we are too old to do anything, we don't have to work anymore. You know, we all have this innate longing, this internal desire to be part of something more, to be part of something bigger, to be part of something greater. And I think that might be why, one of the reasons why we buy into this idea that we can be anything, because we want to matter. We want the things that we do to matter. We want our life to matter. I think we want our work to matter. And whether it's the boardroom, whether it's the laundry room, whether it's the classroom, the truth is the things that we do each and every day are important to us, and we want to find significance. So how do we do that? How do we find our way back to purpose? How do we find our way back to the design that God has for us? Well, here at Northridge, we believe that God's word speaks to all of these things. And I think that one of the things that we can do today is not just look at the Bible as this collection of books, of separate chapters and separate verses and individual principles, but to get back to this idea of looking at scripture as one story. One united story that speaks into our lives with true authority that can shape our lives in a very real, a very practical, and very daily way. So that as we view this world, it can be through the lens that God has for us, not that our culture has for us. See, all of our lives are going to be shaped by a story. The choice is which story will we allow to shape us? Hugh Welchel wrote a book a few years ago called How Then Should We Work? And he does a fascinating job of taking all of Scripture and breaking it down into what he calls the four-chapter gospel. And in this four-chapter gospel, he takes all the way from Genesis to Revelation, he looks at Scripture as creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. He talks about this idea that for the last couple hundred years, especially in westernized Christianity, we have done an incredible job at focusing on chapter two and chapter three, the fall and redemption. And aren't those the pivotal things to our, to our story about getting back to God? Absolutely they are. But when we only focus on those two things, what we begin to look at is only sin and salvation. And the reality is this, sin was not the beginning. And salvation is not the end. And so what we can start to find is we only look at those two chapters, we begin to focus on our deficiency, and yes, certainly God's accomplishment through Christ, but when we broaden that perspective and look at the four-chapter gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately restoration, we begin to find our place and regain our dignity in God's narrative. So we will begin in chapter one, which is creation, The very first verse out of the gate in scripture, in the story that God begins, says this in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He only gets to the fifth word in scripture before he reveals himself and unveils who he truly is. He is creator, he is designer, he is worker, and he spoke the universe into its very existence, calling forward man and woman to be part and specifically and uniquely out of that creation with a designation that belongs only to them because it is only man and it is only woman that are created in the very image or imprinted with the image of God. So that every person here this morning, and if you are here this morning, I'm going out on a limb and assuming you are a person, 
are here this morning with the image of God imprinted into your life. He goes on in Genesis 2.15. He says, the Lord God took the man and woman and put them in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and to care for it. We were made to work. God took man, took woman, his greatest and most prized and most personal creation, and he placed them in a perfect and complete existence. And it was there that they were given their purpose. It was there that we were given our purpose. As reflectors of God, we are called to work. Not, we were not called to lounge around. We were not called to a life of comfort. We were not called to just kind of laying out on the beach. We were called to work because once we work, then our rest finds purpose. But that original calling, that original design, that original creation began to quickly unravel. We see the very opposite of God entering the story. Satan himself, he comes to, to Eve and begins to kind of woo her away from God's design and purpose and quickly followed by Adam in that. And God comes to them and he knows that there's now something wrong with that relationship. Because in creation, they had a purpose and a perfect relationship, but now they've entered into the next chapter, chapter two, the fall, which is the curse and destruction of all things. And Genesis three tells this, this story and gives us this picture of the, the ultimate breakup. And it's this, this jagged separation of man from God, not only relationally, but from all that God had designed and purposed and was intentioned and was originally good. This conversation is the most brutal and literally heart-wrenching breakup of all eternity as the creator of the universe, rejected by his most prized and loved creation, chooses the ugliness of self over the beauty of God. And, and with no choice left, God, God can only push them away, can only separate himself from his prized creation and tell them that they will now and forever be forward cursed under the fall. And so if, if that's the existence that we're in right now, under this veil, under this burden, under the pain of the fall, is it any wonder that the work that we are headed to tomorrow can be a struggle for us? Is it any wonder that there's days when we just feel like we've just got to get through it? We're constantly battling the brokenness of the fall. We fight against this every day. We fight against this idea of a fractured inheritance. See, the world that we're born into, the world that we're given, is not the world that it could have been or should have been or was intended to be. And in that world, nothing that we have and nothing that we create and nothing that we imagine is as complete or as beautiful or fulfilling as it was intended. We also fight against a constant enemy. And this enemy is relentless and he is pervasive and he seeks to make lies sound like truth. He wants to shatter beauty into pieces of ugliness and turn joy to sorrow and infect all that is good with evil and depravity and hopelessness. We fight against an ever-present pain. We do not have to look far. Every screen that we have will tell us a story of pain and agony in a world that groans under this curse. And the suffering and the savagery of our fellow man is never far away. We fight against an active resistance. See, order, organization, and excellence are not, not the natural default settings of any circumstance or any situation. We fight against the natural destruction of this earth as if, as if the earth itself 
were convening against us and working against us. See, the way of the wild is continually towards destruction. And sooner or later, the impact of loss will affect all of us. We fight against, ultimately, our continued spiritual separation. The intimacy for which we were originally created, the joy that was to be ours, has been replaced with separation. It's been replaced by rejection and defined by brokenness. And that is followed by our inability to find contentment, satisfaction, or happiness in any of our own feeble attempts at rebuilding our own broken lives or restoring our relationship with God. Merry Christmas. And if this is what we're up against, if this is our daily fight, is it any wonder that the curse of sin has clouded our vision of what our work can be and instead replaced our daily labor as something that's completely lost its meaning, it fails to satisfy us, and it withholds the reward of fulfillment and significance we so desperately crave. But don't worry. There's four chapters. So chapter one is creation. Chapter two is the fall. And now is when we get excited because chapter three is redemption. Chapter three is, when this, is the salvation and hope of all things. See, God was not content with our separation and he wanted to do something about that. And despite us rejecting him and all that he'd given and done, he decided to move, to take action and launch his plan for not only redemption, but also restoration. And we know that he did this through his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8 says this, God took action, took initiative, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. He owns that love for us. He knows what we were designed for. He had intention. He had purpose for us. And because he loved us and that did not shift despite our separation, he took action sending his son, Jesus Christ, when? While we were sinners, while we were under that curse that I described, while we were fallen, while we were broken, while we were discontent, while we were rejecting, while we were dissatisfied, that is when he sent his son to save us. And it was that love that God reached out with through time and space and sent a baby, a baby son to live like no other for the singular point of your redemption and of mine. And it's through the forgiveness that our redemption offers that we can have freedom to return and take place, take our place in God's original purpose and design for us. And it is only through that redemption. So as we labor, as we struggle, as we walk under the burden of the fall, our hope, our joy, our satisfaction can in fact be found, but it is only found through that beginning of redemption. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, this is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God. And it's through this redemption that we find the salvation and hope of all things. And it's there that we find God's purpose, not only for our lives, but for our daily grind. Oz Guinness says this, that God calls, himself to, calls us to himself so decisively that everything that we are, everything that we do, Everything we have is lived out, how? As a response to that call, as a response to his summons and in his service. All of our life changes when redemption happens. 
There's a story that Christ tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 25. And I think it's important to know that this is just a couple days before his crucifixion. So he's, he's gone through his ministry on earth. And his disciples have, have lived with him, have, have wept with him, have worked with him for almost three years now. And they know, they've got this idea that he's leaving and something's going to radically change. And so they come to him and they're like, hey, what's going on? You're kind of like telling us you're not going to be around anymore. What is it that we should be doing? What are we supposed to do? How can we live without you? And he tells them this parable or this story in Matthew 25. And we'll pick it, in, pick it up in Matthew 25, verse 14. It says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. So we see this picture, and it's kind of a picture that maybe we don't totally understand in necessarily our context, but it's this picture of a master. And this master has servants that work for him, and he's clearly a very wealthy master. Because if we kind of uh, formulate how much he's giving these servants as he's leaving, it, it translates to roughly about $3 million to the first servant, about $1.2 million to the second, and about six hundred grand to the third servant. And he calls them together to himself. He says, listen, I'm giving you all my wealth. I'm giving you everything. And I'm leaving. And I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to come back. And that's kind of all he says. But it was clear that he had a defined expectation for what they would do while he was gone. And the story continues, and the master's gone a long time. They're never sure when he's going to come back. But one day he does return. And of course, as any of us would, he calls his servants back to him. They had all of his wealth, all of his resources, and he asks them to kind of give a quick report. And the first servant comes to him and says, hey, awesome news. I took that $3 million. Here's $6 million. And the servant returns it to the master. He goes to the second and he says the same thing to him. Well, you know, how's it gone? You know, and the second servant says, oh, it's been amazing. $2.4 million. Awesome. And he goes to the third, and things don't go quite as well. And he has a unique response to all three of them. See, the first servant and the second servant, they actually did the exact same thing. And we know that because of how the master responded to them. This was not about the volume of dollars that they were able to return. He says this to both the first and the second servant. In verse 21, he said, the master replied to the first servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, so I will put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. And the second servant, he, he had generated less than half the revenue and income that the first servant had, but look at the reward. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. The exact same blessing and reward. This was not about dollars. This was not about quantity. It was about what they had done with what they had been given. And I think the question for us to answer today is, what will we do with what we've been given? What will you do with what you've been given? See, each one of those servants had been given an amazing opportunity. And if God himself has reached through time and space and given us his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us and restore us, what will we do with what we have been given? I believe we need to follow the example of that first and second servant and embrace that opportunity. Embrace the opportunities that God has given us. See, the master gave all to them. He gave all that he had. He entrusted that to them. 
but each one of them was given according to their ability. It was not the same. See, we all have different skills, talents, roles, and responsibilities, and we're not equally accountable to perform the exact same way. We don't have to become something that we're not. We need to find hope in the reality that what God has made each one of us to be is more important than what culture demands that we become. And as we embrace the opportunity that God gives us, we must also embrace the responsibility. And get this, God does not ask for much from us. God asks for all. When we embrace the opportunity that God gives us, we must understand the responsibility that he calls us to. He does not ask for much. He asks for all. Secondly, I think we need to understand the reward. We need to understand that it is not about our own performance, but it's about fulfilling our responsibilities when we embrace that opportunity, when we take all that God has done and given us and do well with that, not for our own sake and for our own gain, but for his, to return that to him, to work with open hands instead of closed fists. And finally, I think the lesson we can learn here is to avoid the consequences. There was a stinging and painful judgment for that third servant. For when he was truthful with the master and said, I I took what you gave me and then did nothing with it. I did nothing with all of that opportunity, all of that resource, all of that ability, all of that talent. The master said, you are wicked, you are lazy and rejected him. Don't miss the point of this parable. This is not a story about the responsibility that we have with the opportunity that we've been given. It's about our responsibility to honor what God has given us. This is not a story about our commonly accepted ideals of success and failure. Because see, both success and failure are equal liars. Our work must be the expression of our identity, not the source of our identity. And we so often get this so wrong and it's so glaringly reflected in how much we believe the lies of success and failure. See, we believe that the lie of success, which is leading us to believe that we're always enough as long as we always accomplish more. But we so often also believe the lie of failure, which is leading us to believe that we'll never be enough as long as we have less than others. Both are lies about who God is and his purpose for each of us and the work that he's called us each to do and to be a part of in this life. Dorothy Sayers wrote early in the 20th century that work should be looked upon not as a necessary drudgery, but as a way of life in which the nature of man could find its proper exercise and delight and so fulfill itself to the glory of God. Our work can fulfill God's glory. I think a way that we can say this to ourselves every single day is that the work that we do each day is our greatest opportunity to reflect God at work in this world. The work that you go to tomorrow can be your greatest opportunity to reflect God's work in this world. Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24 command us that whatever it is that we're doing, we must work at it with all of our hearts as we work for the Lord, not for human masters. We must, and since we know that we'll receive an inheritance from him, it's the Lord Christ that we are serving. We've got to get this, that the work that we do is not about us, but it is about him. It's about embracing that opportunity, understanding the reward available for us, and avoiding those consequences. 
And when we do that, I think we can go to chapter four. In chapter four, restoration, we begin to see that redemption leads us immediately to the work and rebuilding of all things. See, we are commanded to be transformed, but not in our own strength, but in the power of our salvation through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. This is not just the pivot point of redemption where we turn from sin to holiness. It is the beginning point of redemption because God has called us to go beyond redemption and into restoration. We must understand that the gospel is greater than this myopic perspective we so often have that God has a great plan for each and every one of our lives. While that may be true, guess what? God's story is bigger than that. And the gospel is truly about God's great plan for this entire world. It is his world and he has purpose and intention for it. And I think the best way to reshape our perspective of our work is to no longer look at it as just a set of tasks and accomplishment, but as an opportunity to worship. Because worship is simply living a life that reflects God's worth above all things. If we are to truly worship him, it will be done when we reflect him and his worth above all things. So I think our daily work, no matter what it is, can be our loudest worship. And we see this play out in our lives. Our loudest worship can be heard when we work to serve. Christ himself told his disciples that when we serve those in need, we serve him. When we recognize and meet the needs of those around us, we serve and honor him. So when we give to those who suffer from injustice, from those, to those who are marginalized, who those who hunger, for those who are rejected, for those who are displaced, we serve Christ. And that worship is loud to this world when we work to serve. And our worship is loud when we work to reach, when our efforts in the marketplace are all about, are focused and about presenting our work in such a way that we can point to the gospel and enable people to see Jesus Christ through our attitudes, through our actions, and through the things that we do each day. When we work to reach others, our worship is loud. Our worship is loud when we just work to do down to the smallest and most minute detail with the passion and excellence it deserves so that when people watch and observe, they know that we work for something greater than ourselves. Our worship is loud when we work to create as imitators of the one true creator of all things. We can work every day to bring beauty into this world. It might be the kitchen table of a stay-at-home parent or the wrench of a mechanic or the scalpel of a surgeon or the brush of an artist or the, the graphics of a designer or the coding of a programmer or a lesson plan of a teacher or the proposal of a salesperson or a thousand other ways. But when we, we can encourage the hearts of those we encounter, when our creativity and abilities through the work that we do reflects our one true creator. And our worship is loud when we work to be, when we work to fulfill the purpose God has designed us for. And no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the situation, no matter what the relationships are, that we work with joy and we work with gladness because our hope is not here in this earth, but our hope is in something greater. And we know that we're part of a larger story. Our worship is loud when we work to give, when we work hard to be generous because we recognize that everything that we have has been given to us. And when we realize that we serve a God who was the essence of generosity, we give because he gave. And when we give, that's when we look most closely like Jesus. And our worship is loud when we work to love others. Christ tells his disciples that, listen, 
you want to reflect me to this world, you want people to know that you worship me, then start loving each other in such a radical, different, and nuanced way that the world must take notice of that. If we want our worship to be loud, then we must work to love one another. And finally, for our worship to be loud, we must work to reflect. For we are image bearers. We are imprinted with the image of God. And so if our work, be it mundane or adventurous, be it boring or avant-garde, hardly noticed, or maybe it's a smashing success, it must be in all ways a reflection of the one who made us, called, him to, to, called us to himself in Christ, and set us on a path to be co-workers in the restoration process. Again, Hugh Welchel says in his book, our work is the number one opportunity that God has given us, the church, to love our neighbors and shape our culture. What will you do with the work that you have been given? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, and says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever it is that you do, do it all for the glory of God. Because when we do that, our worship is loud. So the question for each of us is, what will we do with the work that we've been given? And I say given on purpose because our work is a gift. Are we under the fall? Are we under the influence of brokenness? Absolutely, yes we are. And we will fight against that and we will be victorious in that fight because we have been given the gift of redemption and salvation. And it is because of that gift of redemption that we can rejoin God in our original purpose, in our original design to restore this world to what he created it to be. Revelation 21 Verses three through five says this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death and no more mourning and no more crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. For he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We serve a God who has written a four-chapter story. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And he is actively pursuing and calling each of us to rejoin him in his intention to make all things new. And I believe that we will never impact this world with the gospel until our worship on Monday morning is louder than our worship on Sunday morning. So will you today, will you consider rejoining God in his original plan, finding your purpose in his original design? Will you join him and will you answer his call to fulfill your purpose, to find your destiny, to understand the privilege it is to be part of a story greater than the one that you're writing for yourself? From the very beginning, we have been called to work and to care. And that calling has never changed. So, you could never be anything you wanted to be. But what you could be is exactly what God has called you to be. I want you to know that the work that you do each day is about worship, 
The work that you do each day is about serving others. The work that you do each day is about answering God's call on your heart. I hope today and moving forward, you will do that. Let's pray. God, we love you. And, and it is a challenge to get this right. It is a challenge to work in a way that honors you. It's a challenge to work in a way that reflects joy and reflects our original purpose and design. But God, we know that is what you've called us to. We thank you for the story of scripture that calls us back to you and that no matter where we are, whether it's white collar, blue collar, no collar, God, that we have the opportunity through our work to worship, to serve, and to answer. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.